Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley here with Peter Kadzis. Peter, greetings. Hello. In this episode, you're going to hear me talk about the squad versus Nancy Pelosi versus Donald Trump with two brand new Scrum guests. Jen Dedrick, the author of She the People, a new graphic history of gender, U.S. citizenship and the Equal Rights Amendment. And Tina Opie, a management professor at Babson College who specializes in organizational behavior. The squad, of course, is the moniker that's been embraced by four high-profile freshman congresswomen, Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, and Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts. And as you almost certainly know, after sparring with Pelosi and House Democratic leadership, the squad is now at the center of the biggest political story in the country, thanks to the president's decision to vilify them publicly and repeatedly, using language that a lot of people, including me, find racist. But first, Peter Kadzis, you and I have some catching up to do because you were out of town for a few days down in Washington, D.C. What were you up to down there? Adam, I was covering uh, essentially a right-wing conference, a conference called National Conservatism. And it's an effort by conservative scholars uh, and journalists and activists to construct a uh, post-Trumpian framework, intellectual framework for politics. When you say they're trying to construct that sort of framework, are they looking for a framework that accommodates Trumpism or that moves beyond Trumpism? Both. Uh, they would ex- they would accept his ideological commitment to um, tight border controls. Uh, they would not necessarily accept the way in which he does it. I don't know. Simply put, and these are very early days, there are many Trumpian things they support but then they, they're less than enthusiastic about the way Trump does things. But here's the biggest news here, Adam. As a group, there were five, 700 people there and more than 100 members of the press, including the Atlantic Monthly and the New York Times and, of course, WGBH. Uh, this group appears to be very anti-globalist. It also appears to be very suspicious of big monopoly companies, especially big tech. So this is not your average, you know, Reaganite Republican here. Um, They decry big pharma and the impact that unbridled um, markets have allowed that have led to the deadly opioid crisis. They talk about how in the high-tech industry, in the social media industry, uh, neurologists are paid vast sums of money to addict our children to their screens. It's while, hard to argue with that. While other neurologists who are working on curing diseases that might affect our grandchildren are paid less. It is a very different sort of populism. I want to keep asking you about the conference because it sounds fascinating, but we're going to be talking about that in an upcoming podcast about this whole intellectual movement. So instead... I know you've been focused on what you just described, but what are your thoughts as you re-enter the news cycle? What are your thoughts on the squad versus Nancy Pelosi versus Donald Trump? Well, I'm going to approach this from a social science point of view. 
economists have something called a determinacy, determinancy paradox. Let's imagine a circle. And inside that circle, you have all the members of Congress, including, of course, the squad. Outside of that circle, you have the Twitter sphere and the rest of social media. The rules that apply inside the circle do not apply outside. And obviously, the rules of social media don't apply inside. Now, someday they might, but at the moment, they don't. And much of this confusion in the media about who's up, who's down, is Pelosi good, is Pelosi bad, it, it's, it's, it's missing the point. Because different rules govern different sorts of behavior, we're getting a lot of inconsistencies and false positives, if you will, here. Um, am I making sense? You are making sense, I think. Push me a little I, well, more. I find, my, I find myself thinking, um, you know, point taken that the rules of Congress are not the same as the rules of the social media world. That's something that we'll hear from our guests about in a moment. But that being said, we're living in an era right now where the president of the United States has taken to Twitter as his dominant mode of communication and embraced the rules of the Twitter sphere and jettisoned a lot of the rules that used to dictate what you do when you're the president of the United States. So we're in a time of flux. But what you say does make sense. To me. Yeah. What President Trump is doing, you can apply this to analyzing Trump as well. Um, all that Trump's doing in the Twitter sphere some of it seeps into that circle of Congress, but Congress runs by different rules. Listen, while I was in Washington, I ran into a Republican congressman who I interviewed many years ago when I worked at Forbes. And I asked him, what do you make of the squad? And he chuckled and he said, you're not asking me as a Republican. I said, no, just as a member of Congress. He said, I think you guys in the media make much more of them than we do in Congress. And huh. he said the same thing Nancy Pelosi said. They only have one vote. Well, so you've got the media making more of them than people do in Congress and also the president of the United States who's seized on them as if they are the four most important people. But it's in great. Politics. It's it's great politics. Yeah. As as Richard Nixon used to say, people don't vote for something. They vote against something. I completely buy your premise. But I just for listeners who might who might have their ears prick up. It's hard to acknowledge it being great politics coming off the heels of that send her back chant that we heard about Ilhan Omar. Very distressing. Um, but but yeah, I mean, for, for Trump, I, I guess a, a strong case can be made that it's working exactly the way he wanted it to. One, let me get, get final thing and then I'll, right. I'll, I'll, I'll be quiet. Coming away from this national conservatism conference, I would pose this question to Republicans. Do the president's actions make the United States of America, one nation under God, a better place? All right. More to come along those lines in the very near future. Peter Kadzis, thanks for all that. Now, without further ado, it's time to hear my convo on this topic with Tina Opie and Jen Dedrick. So at the outset, I want to get a terminological question settled. The group of lawmakers who we're going to be talking about are frequently referred to as the squad. 
But there was a tweet from Audie Cornish, the excellent NPR host, over the weekend, I believe, in which she said, I am 100% uninterested in talking about any group of lawmakers as the squad. This is not high school. So just at the outset, should we call them the squad or should we not call them the squad? Squad. I'm all for squad. You want to go with squad? It yeah. doesn't bother me either. No, it's already. I mean, I have a squad. I'm not in high school. I also have a squad. Okay, so squad it is. Yeah. If for nothing else, yeah. for the utility of having an easy shorthand. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be interesting to know what they call themselves and if they refer to themselves as a particular. Term. You know, I thought that Ayanna Presley, didn't she do an interview with Adrian Walker at the Globe recently in which she talked about how the squad isn't just them, the squad is people yeah. who support it, them? I, yeah, I, I think, think it's, it's at like least a little, okay with and it. It's, yeah. it's tongue in cheek, you know, it's like because it's reference to, you know, like pop star divas who have squads. It is. Right. And so it's a little tongue in cheek, but also real. All right. So the squad it is. I want to know at the outset, before we get to what the president has had to say about the squad, which I find both shocking and completely predictable and in line with almost everything that he's said or done since before he became president. I want to talk about what I think is a more complicated story, which is the back and forth that's been going on for a few weeks now between Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, and the squad. squad. I'm still working to to, to say it unselfconsciously. Yeah. So, and and I don't think we need to do a a full recreation of what led to this back and forth, but I want to just go really quickly and tell me if I'm getting this history wrong, by the way, because I might have missed something. At the end of June, after the House passed a border bill that a lot of people thought didn't go far enough, Saikot Chakrabarty, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's chief of staff tweeted that Democrats who back that bill, quote, certainly seem hell-bent to do to black and brown people today what the old Southern Democrats did in the 40s. He later deleted that tweet. On July 6th, the New York Times published a piece by Maureen Dowd that quoted Pelosi saying of the squad, all these people have their public whatever and their Twitter world, but they didn't have any following. They're four people, and that's how many votes they got i.e. for their bill in uh, in the House, on the border package. A few days later, Politico ran a story that talked about a closed-door meeting that Pelosi had with a bunch of Democrats in which she told them not to tweet criticisms of their colleagues. She reportedly said, you got a complaint, you come and talk to me about it, but do not tweet about our members and expect us to think that that is just okay. She also said staffers should think twice before they tweet. And then Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in an interview with The Washington Post, accused Nancy Pelosi of singling out her, Ilan Omar, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib, calling the alleged singling out outright disrespectful and suggesting the speaker was exacerbating threats of violence against the four. Ocasio-Cortez said it's really just pointing out the pattern, right? We're not talking about just progressives. It's singling out four individuals. Uh, What do the two of you make of this tension that has developed, and what do you think is driving it? Tina, well, let me start with you. Or oh, Jen, I'll start with you, too. Okay, go ahead. All right. Well, I just think, I mean, to me, it initially just sounded like sort of normal political stuff. Everything gets hyped up on Twitter. Um, Nancy Pelosi's job is to keep the Democrats unified, uh, especially if we're talking about doing impeachment at some point. Obviously, we have to have, she has to make sure everyone's happy. Uh, AOC, I'll call her AOC, uh, has a, her own constituency to think about, and Ayanna Presley does. Um, they're standing up for their own stuff. I do think that um, AOC's aide, the Chakrabarty, maybe is a little out of line, and it's maybe needs to be reined in a little by her or something, or maybe needs to be more of do another job somewhere, but um, 
<laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> and in, you know, and I think it's um, you know Nancy Pelosi's job is to count noses. She's and she's I I and I know that it's very frustrating. And we have uh, you know the 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 squad, as it were, uh, represent uh, constituencies who are really really pushing for we need to impeach this guy now, and with good reason. There's no, I mean, he's very dangerous. He's uh, doing these egregious things. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is thinking about uh, how do I get it, the votes for that. Um, so yeah, and what I would add is so to me this really comes down to unity versus authenticity, and Nancy Pelosi's role is really to make sure, as as Jen said, to count the noses to get the votes to make sure that the democratic values are being reflected and represented. But I would say values for what? Because I do have, while I do take umbrage with some of the the tweet that initially went out, you know, I don't know if that was necessarily the proper format or forum, but I want to get at the underlying meaning that I think he was trying to, I don't want to speak on his behalf. I don't know the man. But you can give a charitable interpretation <clears throat> yeah, of what I he was I can give a charitable for. interpretation, which is, I think that sometimes... We as Democrats, liberals, progressives can make the mistake of thinking that racism and isms don't exist within our very family, that if you want to say a Democratic family. And I think what he was trying to call out is the fact that it can appear at times that marginalized people, once they make it to Congress, are they are further marginalized. They are asked to adhere to standards that are not necessarily applied to other people. They're asked to be quiet. They're asked to stand down. They are not necessarily, um, when when we've heard, I mean, I think it was Omar who read, and, and Talib, who read some of the threats that they actually get on their voicemails. <clears throat> to my understanding, there was not a groundswell of Democratic support for these women. So what do we make of that? Do we really think that that is okay, where these women may be feeling as though they have to contend with these issues on their own? If, in fact, the democratic mechanism and infrastructure is there to support democratic leaders, then where was it? Why was it so silent? So that is something that I think the tweet was getting at. I do also understand Pelosi, though. Um, This is an example to me of where people should have considered the forum. So I think it would have been best if and when Pelosi had an issue with the initial tweet that went out. Absolutely. I think having that piece with Maureen Dowd was a mistake, was a huge mistake, because it's one thing for one of her members to have this kind of approach. It's a whole different thing for the Speaker of the House to respond in that way. That escalated it to a point where I think it really... um, made things get out of hand pretty quickly. I mean, we are in this this crazy, unprecedented time, too, in which so everyone is is on edge anyway. Right. So you do have. The, yeah, everyone the, the squad. is losing their shit. Everyone which we can say. Their, since can we say that? Oh, body losing their shit. Um, we uh, because, you know, it, it is, you know, so the squad does face this unprecedented amount of just negative intent. You know, we're not unprecedented, but because it's all online and you look at what AOC gets, you know, the, the crazy attention she gets and the, the hatred from men and the, like that creepy hatred that they have. Well, it's not just hatred from men. It's hatred from white people. And from white people. Because so, I think we can't forget too. the intersection. Yeah issues no, no, that we're confronting. White people. Yeah. But her the creepy obsession with her and the and the sexualized sexualized nature of a lot of the attacks. Um, and also, you know, I, I have a friend who's a, an immigration lawyer and I work in reproductive rights and women's rights things. And we were having a whole talk about how we're just constantly 
running around putting out fires and like being, you know, like she's gone back and forth to the border because we keep, you know, or they're constantly on call because we're told that they're going to be immigrants routed up or we're going down. And so everyone's on edge and, and protective and it's scary. And so I think also it's um, there's yeah, there's decorum. And then there's the reality of how people are having to live right now and which can, you know, which goes against a lot of decorum to Harken back just a little bit to what you had to say, Tina, about about uh, Saikot Chakrabarty's tweet that got this started. You may be right again. I don't know the guy, and I haven't talked to him right. about what Neither he intended. Neither do I. But I felt like his focus there, my read on that tweet was that his focus when he talked about uh, Democrats being willing to do to black and brown people what the new Democrats did in the 40s, I felt like the black and brown people who he was talking about were people at the border who were going to be uh, detained in inhumane conditions as they were trying to cross. And like that was that was the focus of his criticism, as opposed to you aren't coming to the defense of my boss or her compatriots as they do their thing. And I actually was wondering if there was a big generational piece at play here. And I say this in part maybe because I am a member of Gen X and I know many wonderful millennials. I can't say some of my best friends are millennials because that wouldn't be true. But I know I work with a lot of terrific millennials. Sure. But I do feel like what we might be seeing here is a clash between an old conception of the way Congress works in which seniority really matters. And you come in and you put your head down and you cultivate relationships. And over time, you build the clout necessary to be considered a leader. And a much more new media-centric conception of what Congress is and how Congress works, where, as Ayanna Presley talked about during in her campaign against Mike Capuano, you use your platform as an activist would, and you have the squad coming in, and, and they are going to, in much the same way the president does, and I'm talking about that not in terms of the content, but in terms of their use of social media, their use of public utterances, they're going to maximize their impact from day one without hewing to these old conventions about, okay, you know, do you go along to get along and, and keep it quiet for a while and gradually build your presence? Does that sound like a plausible, not that it's mutually exclusive with what you guys had to say, but do you think that might be at play here as well? You think about the generational gap? Yeah. I absolutely think that there's a generational gap. Before I go to that, I do, again, I don't want to speak for Chakrabart. I don't I don't know what he meant I by love his how statement. both of us <laughs> Right, right, because I don't know him. I have not analyzed his tweet and this is not me trying to be politically correct. It's me trying to be accurate when I make this comment. So I'm just being really clear that I don't know what he meant. However, I do think from having followed each of the four members of the squad, they do speak to these larger historical issues that have confronted black and brown people. The border policy and immigration is one of those. So for me, when I think about this, I'm looking at this in totality. Point taken. Okay. So now getting to the generational issue. For me... Yes, I do think that we have this new media, we have the old approach to the, the way that Congress works. You get in there, you put your head down, you work, somebody notices that you're doing, you get put on a good committee, and then what do you know? The next thing you know, you're a leader. I have a real issue with that. And because I've seen the same path in corporate America, I've seen the same path in nonprofits, I've seen the same par- uh, path in our general society, and typically that kind of slow status quo benefits the individuals who are already in that system. So in my opinion, what the squad is doing is absolutely necessary to shake things up. But I'm also pragmatic because I'm like, you can shake things up and then what if we lose the White House? Now, 
maybe that is not the state, the, the, the outcome that we only need to be focused on. Because to me, the best of both worlds would be some combination of the two, where the old status quo is informed by new media. Had Pelosi had the squad come in, and yes, they only have four votes, but that's strictly adhering to the old approach. They also have millions and millions and millions of followers. And I'm not equating followers to the legacy and reputation and prestige that you— But it matters. Again, yeah. just, just matters. look at the current occupant of the White House, right? Yeah. Look at President Trump. Yeah. So, so I think that, you know, there's this word respect. It felt like there was disrespect going back and forth. Um, and I will say more res- disrespect coming from Pelosi towards them because I felt like she might have— I think I heard a quote where she referred to, yeah, in some of these places they would nominate a bottle of water or a glass of water. They, they would easily get in there. Or, yeah, they have four votes, but they have four votes, but that's it. They don't have that many that much of a following. To yeah, me, that that's, was in the, that latter one was in the Dow Collins. Yeah, so. the well, there, but the other thing though is when Chuck Brody said that. I mean, in in terms of you talk about young people who don't necessarily is he when the moderate Democrats he was referring to, some of them were black people, brown people. You know, they were people. He was criticizing Sharice Davis for not understanding about racism, right. which he's a Native American. He's Native American, and, and then well, he's but wait a minute, hold on, because yeah. we cannot fall into the trap. There are different ways of that race, just because you're Native American but, or black does not mean you that you understand how, racism. But you can understand large. how some black members of Congress would feel upset to be being compared to the Dixiecrats. Right. And I, I think mean, it was the, the uh, House Democrats Twitter account, which I believe is managed by Hakeem Jeffries, that yeah, pushed back right. really hard against Psychot Charcobardi, Ocasio-Cortez's so it's chief a very, of staff. So it does get really... And also, I mean, and I, I think, think we should the, have a conversation, though. And I, I mean, think also the House, though, the House has always been uh, much more tumultuous anyway than the... Like the Senate, the, you know, it's the... The, right, the saucer, which cools the tea or whatever the metaphor is. Um, and... Um, but Congress is, I mean, the how, I mean, if you read Joanne Freeman's recent book, was it, I think it's Field of Blood, is that what it's, or uh, I'm going to fake it like I know exactly. Oh, yeah. What's the story Well, there? so her thing, she's talking about the history of Congress and the Senate and all the, the physical violence that occurred on the floor all the time. And in fact, it was often, I mean, we have, of course, Charles Sumner here. Who, that was in the Senate, right? That was, that well, he was a senator and then... After he'd made a speech and, and it had adjourned, a congressman from South Carolina sneaks in and beats him Beat with the a cane. Beats the crap out of him with the cane. Crap, like yeah. limbs for the rest of his life. But beyond that, apparently that was like really common. And you'd have, especially like Southern congressmen would beat uh, Northern congressmen up and things like well, badly and threaten that's, them. That's a particular culture. So we That's called toxic masculinity. That was toxic masculinity <laughs> and it was the center. So I, I think that. And there have, you know, we talk now, we have, you know, Auntie Maxine, right, that everyone loves. And Maxine Waters was very radical when she first came to Congress. I also think, you know, with Pelosi, she knows that. I think she's always maintained, you know, she would tell her, you know, the people who were working under her, look, go back to your, if you need to go to your districts and talk about how awful I am, fine, do that. Because she can deal with being unpopular and she gets that dynamic. But she also has to, you know, for the moderates who are upset, with what was said, she can also look like I'm also allied with you. Yeah, and then so I, I think, you know, it's complicated and weird and I don't know because I've only watched The West Wing. I don't really know how it all works. But <laughs> Let me ask you if, uh, and this this is another thing kind of lurking in the background here. I talked about the disagreement over the border bill, but there's this broader frustration on the left on the part of Democrats who don't think that Pelosi is being aggressive enough when it comes to the president, that she should be moving to impeach him, pushing for impeachment right now. Do you two think that she might be making a mistake akin to what I think 
you could argue Hillary Clinton made in the last presidential campaign, namely that Donald Trump, when it gets to an election, he's going to lose. He's not going to be popular enough to win. He's going to be too divisive. So we don't need to rush ahead with impeachment in a foolhardy way and risk losing, you know, moderate voters. Let's just get this thing to the general and then he'll be unseated and we can get about making the kind of policy we want to. You think she might be making a mistake? I don't think Hillary Clinton made that mistake. I think the Republicans made that mistake. That they thought, you know, there were all those Republicans in and they just let him slide through. I mean, she, I mean, Hillary Clinton made, she made speeches about, um, his Russia connection. She True. was making speeches about his connection to the white supremacists. He, she was fully out there, and they had ads about it. They talked about his bankruptcies. They talked about the way he screwed over contractors. So it was just that people didn't listen to that, and they were. Mm-hmm. it was just all like, but her emails all the time. And so I, I well, think... Well, they didn't um, listen to that, and they didn't like other things about her. Right, and then they're like, oh, and she's, you know, whatever her voice, and yeah. maybe if she... Mm. Yeah, uh, whatever it was. Um, we don't like her suit. Um, but... Uh, I mean, I would love to see him impeach right now. But I also, I think a lot of people, it, it's there's an emotional need for it. And I, I, I think it's important to do an impeachment because people don't watch the regular hearings, right? That I keep seeing people, you know, on Twitter, which means, I don't know what that means, but who say, you know, oh, the tw- Democrats aren't doing anything. The Democrats are holding all of these hearings, calling people into account. They're subpoenaing people. They're, but we don't see that. A, 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 uh, an impeachment hearing would be on TV. Uh, people yep. would turn into that. But the other thing is when I hear... You know, there, there's a lot of like, why, you know, they need to do this. There's this assumption still, this underlying assumption that at some point the Republicans who haven't done anything are going to be like, all right, we've changed our mind. Like they did with Nixon, like they did with Clinton, you know, where they suddenly went, well, let's let cooler heads prevail. That's not going to happen this time. So there's not any, uh, there's no chance that suddenly all these Republicans who've been standing by a while all this happens are going to go, oh, you know what? Let's be reasonable now. That's not going to happen. He's, and, and Trump, I mean, Nixon stepped down just at the threat of impeachment hearings. That's not going to happen with this guy. He's going to stick it out to the end. He doesn't care. He, has, yeah. he doesn't have shame. <laughs> well, I don't. I can't speak for what the man does or doesn't have. I mean, I, I can draw but, some hypotheses you know. based on... Yeah, I know. But I have some, some thoughts. But I think, you know, based on my understanding of if... Clinton were impeached because he lied under oath about having interactions with Monica Lewinsky, then it definitely seems like there are impeachable offenses for 45. I'll just say that. So it seems like there is merit to him being impeached. However, I respect from what I've heard. I don't know Nancy Pelosi, never met the woman, don't even really fully understand how Congress and all that works behind the scenes. I think it's designed that way. Things happen behind closed doors that the public is unaware of. I think she is an expert at whipping votes, at doing what she does. And the fact that she's not running after impeachment may mean that she's playing a long game and thinking about chess as opposed to checkers. And while it would feel really good to some to see an impeachment hearing, it might feel like vindication, would it actually be strategic? And I think from the arguments that I've heard her present, she's saying it's not a strategic move at this point. And I also think, as someone who listens to different news stations, I listen, I listen to many, you know, very conservative, right-leaning, very liberal, progressive, left-leaning people. There is a totally different perspective yeah. about impeachment from swaths of the U.S. public. And I do think that that would be further division within the populace. Not that I'm saying that that's wrong. I mean, there's a lot of division about apartheid, about 
uh, affirmative action, like about polls, sexual assault. I, I don't know what the latest numbers are, but anytime yeah. I've seen it's a popular. poll, it's a strong majority of the country that does sure. not want impeachment. But I am Generation X, so I remember the Iran-Contra hearings. And I mean, the things that were revealed that the Reagan administration did were astounding. Reagan ended up with an airport name for him. So it's, you know, he lasted out his term. Uh, so it's, you know, the idea that, you know, once we get it on TV and people see it, then... I mean, I, th- I do think, and again, because I've watched a lot of the West Wing, there's a, a romance around that. You know, this, you know, it's that it's the same as if the, you know, they would always say with Obama, if Obama would just make a good speech about this, then and it's like, no, that's not how it works. It's the same thing. If we just put this on TV, then it'll it'll fix itself and people will get it. And I don't know if that's true. Clinton didn't get I mean, he was impeached, but he wasn't indicted in the impeachment. He remained president. Uh, I don't know, and I, I forgot to look this up before I came on, but I don't know if any impeachment's been successful of a president to get him out. There was one president I think was kicked out. I would answer the question if I knew. I know I feel yeah, like I know. the oh, answer. Man, I'm, I'm the one who's the historian technically, so I should know. But that's neither here nor there. So since we've talked now about Pelosi versus the squad at some length, I got to ask you too for your take on what the president has been saying, and he's been saying it in sort of an endless stream. Uh, for a few days now, uh, he was I was watching him speaking from the the West Wing lawn before coming down here to talk to you two. And he was saying that, you know, if, if these Congress people who he didn't <coughs> deign to name don't like the country, they can just leave or it. Or couldn't remember um, the names of. Who, who, right, right. Um, so who knows what's going to happen between the time we wrap up our convo here and and the time this is, uh, thing is posted online. But what's your take on the president? hopping on Twitter and saying, among other things, that uh, three congresswomen born in the United States and one who is a citizen of the United States um, can just go back to the places they're from, these horrible places, if they are so upset about the way things are here. It's more of the same. I mean, to me, remember, this is one of the people who perpetrated birtherism for President Obama. This is one of the people I don't curse, so I'll say he just said asshole countries when referring to countries in the on the continent of Africa. So this is just more of the same. It's something that we would probably all tell our children to never say. It's beneath the office of the president, but we have who we have in office right now, and I think that this is behavior. He probably be- believes that in his bones, but is that the proper forum or to communicate that? And is that even a value that we as U.S. citizens or human beings, forget U.S. citizens, human beings, do we espouse that value? I think the answer is no. Oh, he's a, ra- he's a racist. He's a racist. He's a racist. I mean, we know this. He's a white supremacist. He's a white nationalist. Um, he has people in his administration who, uh, you know, or has had who admire the Nazis, who emulate the Nazi position. I mean, it's just, right. it's it's like, it's beyond, it's... Um, it's this there. I feel like with this, you know, they're in the past with presidential scandals. It's like a revelation. Like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this happened with this. It's like we knew all this stuff that came, it's we already knew this. We knew this when he you know, when he was first announced his presidency, comes down the escalator, immediately says that most Mexicans are rapists. Right. Mm-hmm. So like if you if you could vote for him after that or think of him as not being racist after that, then I don't you know, it, I don't know how you continue to think that about him. Um, it's, uh, it's, he's just straight up. He just, he doesn't like black people. He doesn't like brown people. He doesn't, he thinks the only citizens of America should be white. He's, it's, he's very clear about that. 
Um, and people can spin it. They can try to make it like maybe he meant this or he misspoke or it's racially tinged as some. But it's it's so obvious what it is. It's sort of absurd. If so, what do you make of the fact that I think the latest Gallup poll had 45 percent of Americans approving of President Trump? Do you think it means that 45 percent of Americans share his take on views involving race, uh, along with other stuff? Or does it mean that some portion of Americans do, some sizable portion, uh, but that there's a whole bunch more who are comfortable just looking at this stuff as sort of ancillary and a distraction, and they really like the way the uh, the stock market's going. Absolutely. Or, I mean, the it's, latter, it's, you're saying, it, I, I think it's the latter. And and I, I differ with, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a black woman, very proud to be, and and I don't even call 45 a racist. And, and some people might say, oh my gosh, you should just call it what it is. The reason I don't is I do work on on reducing racism. I have a project called Shared Sisterhood, which I'm actually hosting on Wednesday night. And one of the things that I found in that research shows is that when you call people racist, the conversation tends to shut down. And so to me, that's sort of like, I maybe sounded like Pelosi when calling him a racist is feels vindicating, feels validating, but then what? So we label him a racist, and then where does the conversation go? And the re- so so because I would hope that if that is the label that's affixed to him, maybe he's not an elected president. But he was. <laughs> so he was elected president. He's in the office. If you're sitting there and you're trying to have a conversation with people who are representing his cabinet and you're calling them racist, the conversation's over. Not that I'm not saying that there aren't times for that, but if you're actually trying to get something done, trying to change legislation, trying to change policies, I don't think that using that language is the he- is the healthiest way to bring about change. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that's a fascinating point because obviously in addition to everything you've said, it's not just people in his cabinet that critics of Trump are trying to bring around. It's people who voted for him in the 2016 election who maybe even voted for Barack Obama once or twice or who, you know, whatever they yeah. did with Obama. Wait, you, voting for Barack Obama does not mean you're not a racist. That's, that's, not, that's, not, that's oh, not what no. I'm saying. But what I'm saying is if you're a Democrat, you want someone who voted Obama the first time around and or the second time around and then voted for Trump in 2016. You want them on your side in 2020. I mean, I think I was agreeing with you just yeah. pointing out that there's well, another utility. But I would, say this. I would but, say this, though. I think that one of the, the points is, yes, I think that somebody can shut it down when you say this person is a racist. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I think there are differences. I mean— there are people who have racist thoughts, who are part of the racist system and help perpetuate it inadvertently. Or um, he is very deliberately uh, pushing uh, racist objectives. Like it's not; it's his. Um, it's what he's he's doing it for those reasons. I mean, I think that you, you look at you know, like looking at history, there are uh, presidents who uh, didn't think of themselves as racist thought. Maybe, you know, like, oh, you know, if I just improve economics, it doesn't, you know, I can ignore the race stuff or we just have to help people lift themselves up by their bootstraps and didn't necessarily uh, weren't intentionally encouraging a racist divisions. This guy, though, I mean. But see, I guess what I'm saying is, is I'm not going to litigate his intent. I'm looking at his impact. I think there is a there are definite racist outcomes. I don't have to. So I can say to someone, look, 
I don't know if you're a racist or not, but when I look at your board of directors, when I look at the hiring and promotion process, when I look at recruiting, when I look at the policies that are in place, are you aware that this is leading to racist outcomes, meaning there is significant or, or sexist outcomes, there are significant differences in pay for women, for black women, for women of color. So you could be great. You could have marched with Martin Luther King Jr. himself. However, what I need to talk to you about is the policy. And all I'm saying is that when you when you talk to people who have different political backgrounds, and these are people who have voted for 45, who will vote for him again, and you say that he's a racist and therefore they're a racist, I do not know no, but how we're going to bring about collective conversation and it doesn't even have to be civil i mean i tend to have civil discourse but it doesn't even have to be civil i mean there are going to be some things that get said that people are going to consider uncivil okay pull put on your big girl draws and let's move forward my point is is that i think we're going to have to move just like some people will call me a bleeding liberal then they find out i'm a christian and they feel different i think i'm not going to be calling people racist conservative dixiecrats because I want to have a conversation with you and I want the conversation to lead to policy and institutional level change so that we can get rid of these racist outcomes. But Tina, let me ask you just in closing before we wrap up a question, given that one of President Trump's signatures has been, as Jen said, I, I think his his overt willingness and desire to stoke racial and ethnic tensions here in the United States in a way that we haven't seen another president do so overtly. How do you have a conversation about that without describing as accurately as you can what he's been doing? Oh, so let's I'm glad you're asking this question because let's clarify. That is racist. That's a racist outcome. The racist beha- it was racist to try to say that there were good people on both sides. That is racism. And by racism we're talking about power plus discrimination. So that he was in a place where he was engaging in behavior, but that is different than saying that he is a racist. Got it. Sure, but he's got, but you know, you have Steve, I, and listen, Steve, but I'm Steve not defending Bannon. The man. No, 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 no. But I'm Steve not defending Bannon. The man. I call him 45. But Steve Bannon, his advisor, it was has made speeches where he says, right, "Yeah, right. be proud, proud to be a racist. Be proud to be a racist. Say you're right." That's he says that. So it's you know, well, so he is a racist. I mean, yeah. he, he he calls himself that. I guess yeah. what I'm saying. Then we can have a conversation about why he would say label me a yeah. racist. So I don't want to get tripped up on. All I'm saying is, is I have seen that happen many times where you call someone a racist or a sexist and they may be engaging in racist or sexist behaviors, but it doesn't necessarily lead to change. And maybe that's not where you need to focus. You need to focus on other people. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Big thanks to our guests, Tina Opie and Jen Dedrick. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. If you haven't subscribed to The Scrum yet, I am honestly not sure what you're waiting for, so do it. While you're at it, we'd love it if you would rate us, leave a comment, and maybe tell a friend or two to take a listen. You can talk back to me and Peter on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. He is at Kadzis. Or via email at scrum at wgbh.org. Our engineer was John Parker. We get crucial production help from him, Andrew Masawa, Gary Mott, and Doug Sugars. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Scrum.